0: I make up all these excuses, or I make up all these reasons why I'm not good enough or not capable of doing something. But (laughs) I think the perfect example is that like, I feel like such an imposter in in the writing community. And when I was creating this chapbook that I ended up taking on the storytelling tour and selling it, and as Danny and I were creating it together, we co-authored this chapbook called Asking for Elephants. And as we were creating it together, Uh, we were just like, well, we bicycled across India together. We can probably, like, (laughs) create this document together, you know? We can probably self-publish this little book together. Even if I feel like an imposter in the writing community, even if I'm, like, not sure about my words, you know? Like, I I already did something that seemed absurd. I can do this, too.
1: That was Marianne Thomas, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 150. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. So, on this show, my guests and I are committed to one simple but powerful thing telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything, no one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I certainly don't have any magic answers, and I can't give you any miraculous 10 day, six step life hack plans for anything. But, As a recovering self-help junkie myself, I'm honestly so over the quick fix approach, and my guess is that maybe you are too. Maybe that's even why you're here. So no, that's not what this show's about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep. We go into meaningful topics like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and everything in between. This is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, often using adult language, and we never shy away from just telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way, even when it's uncomfortable. So with this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener funded, made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. The show is and always will be free. But if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. When you get over to Patreon, you'll see our current funding goal. And when we reach that goal, it means that every single person who works on this show will get paid. That includes me and my sound engineer, Adam Day, as well as every single guest who comes onto the show. Because that's my vision, for each of our guests to be paid for the time, energy, honesty, care, and emotional labor that they bring to these conversations. The budget won't be huge to start with and will hopefully continue to grow over time, but higher rates will always be paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. Being able to pay all our guests has been a big dream of mine for a while now, because as you've probably heard me say before, I believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world that we want to live in. And if I want to live in a world where people get paid for the work they do, especially creative work, then it's up to me to create that model here at Real Talk Radio even if it's definitely not the norm in the podcast industry. So please know that when you help to fund this show, you're using your money as a vote for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women, and you're voting to pay those folks for the entertainment and education that they so expertly provide. When you support this show, you're saying, loudly and proudly, that these voices deserve to be heard, and that no topic should be off-limits due to fear or shame. As a special thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind-the-scenes email series where I share my real life in real time, which, oh man, if you think that it gets vulnerable and honest on the podcast, just wait till you start getting my emails. Plus, you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for Real Talk Live events and retreats. Also, 5% of each season's profits are donated to social justice organizations, such as Trans Lifeline, Black Lives Matter, and Planned Parenthood, so you can feel really good about that aspect of your pledge contribution to this show as well. Over on Patreon, you'll also see that there are currently three different funding levels, an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. At the $25 level, we even do live Google Hangouts together, and oh my gosh, those are so much fun. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Marianne Thomas. Marianne is the Brown queer daughter of Indian immigrant parents, a travel nurse, bike tourist and writer. She's biked over 10,000 miles in the last five years. In 2014, she biked solo from San Diego to Montreal, and in 2017, she biked across India from the Himalayas to Kerala, the state at the tip of the subcontinent where her family's from. She co-authored Asking for Elephants, a chapbook on her journey to her homeland, and her writing has been featured in numerous platforms, including Autostraddle, She Explores, The Rumpus, and more. In this episode, Marianne shares honest stories from her long-distance bike tours, going into detail about how she prepares, what makes her feel safe along the way, how much she's relied on the kindness of strangers, and the things that she wished that she had known when she first started. We also talk about some more personal things, such as the romantically tumultuous year that she's had, what it was like to break up with a partner of nine years and experience being single as an adult for the first time, finding queer community in India, and how she sets her boundaries with online sharing and storytelling when it comes to the balance of honesty and privacy. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this conversation with Marianne, and I hope that you do too. So all of that starts in just a moment. And as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. Awesome. We are rolling.
0: Marianne, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Nicole.
1: Drop me into your real life. Tell me how you spent like the first, let's say hour or two of your day today.
0: I woke up in Oakland at my friend's place and then I drove across the Bay Bridge to my other friend's place (laughs) and drank some tea and ate some oatmeal. And now I'm talking to you.
1: I love it. What kind of tea? What do you put in your oatmeal? Tell me all the details.
0: (laughs) I uh, am drinking green tea with honey and I put granola, like pumpkin flax granola into my oatmeal because I don't like eating it plain.
1: Yeah, I have recently discovered the granola and oatmeal combo and it's so good. Yeah, I've been doing oatmeal with like just basically microwave oatmeal, right? Like the regular rolled oats. And then I add coconut milk, like the thick, full fat coconut milk and cinnamon and some kind of fruit. And then I just like dump a bunch of granola on top and maybe a little maple syrup. And I'm like, this is like my lunch basically every single day since I've gotten off trail. I know that's maybe not lunch, but it's lunch for me. That
0: sounds so good. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the beauty of granola. Also, if you have not made granola, it's the best smell in the world. It's like worth mm-hmm. making granola just so that your house smells good.
0: That like cinnamon maple syrup smell. I know. Yeah. <laughs> so Unless thirsty. you
1: burn it and then that happens really quickly and then the house smells terrible. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> there's always that option.
1: <laughs> uh living on the edge, right? <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> What's something that lately you've been wishing that people were more open and honest about?
0: Oh. I guess, a lot of things. <laughs> Literally everything. <laughs> Basically everything. I've been talking a lot about, well, I've been thinking a lot about how, like, <laughs> the way vulnerability is branded. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't expect those words to come out of my mouth. But <laughs> um, I, I do a lot of, like, social media posting, and I share a lot of intimate details of my life, and... So, and people appreciate that. People really love it and respond to it and need it, I think. At the same time, I'm just sharing my real life. (laughs) There's no agenda behind that. There's no like, there's no Brene Brown behind (laughs) my words. And I think a lot of times, I don't know, I fear being sucked into this vortex of being super intimate and vulnerable all the time and then getting more positive reinforcement and just kind of like sinking into that in a way that isn't healthy. A book I read recently is called If They Can't Kill Us Till They Kill Us. And it's by Hanif abdur And to me, a big theme in that book is about how sadness is weaponized. Hanif is a, a music writer. He's written for like MTV and Billboard magazine. And he writes these essays that kind of talk about musicians and artists and... Songs, he'll take like a song and then talk about its context in larger culture. And a big part of what he talks about in that book is about how sadness is weaponized in performance and music performance, and how when somebody's being receiving positive reinforcement for the ways in which they are performing, like grief or sadness or depression, that they sink into that and they are now like they're just encouraged to be sad and to sit with that in a way that is sometimes not healthy. It doesn't... It's kind of like also that Hannah Gatsby, I think that's her name, mm-hmm. Nanette stand-up comedy skit, where she talks about how, like, when she's telling a joke, that you get frozen in the moment of your your grief. <laughs> or your you don't get to get past that part of the story. And so I've been... I, I write a lot of stuff on the internet about things that are intimate or hard or ways in which, like, like I have struggled, I guess. But like the other day, somebody messaged me and asked like, oh, what are my, how have I specifically been impacted by racism or misogyny or queer phobia in outdoors culture? And sometimes I'm like, okay, I can talk about that. Yeah, I can (laughs) talk about Just a small question. I can talk about that, but I actually want to talk about how I've gotten through that and how what I do instead of being like succumbing to that. Because I think that is an example that's more important maybe to leave with people of like, we all have our different struggles. You don't necessarily need to know every part of my struggle. I don't need to relive that trauma for you in order for you to empathize with the way that I actually cope with it. Mm,
1: that's so well said. I mean, there's so much in what you just said that I feel like is incredibly important. Like, especially this idea that the only way to make art is through pain, right? This sort of like starving, tortured artist archetype. And it doesn't mean that we can't turn pain or grief or sadness or anything into art because I feel like art comes from emotion and those are emotions. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I think that, yeah, it's really easy to get trapped into thinking, you know, people only find my work valuable if I'm trauma sharing, right? There's like something really dangerous in that. I think it's so funny that you brought this up because I've been thinking a lot about this too, about that about the fact that, you know, if we're looking for people to share their real lived experiences at whatever level they, level they feel comfortable, like joy is vulnerable also. It doesn't like, it's, it's easy to think like vulnerability or authenticity or sharing, like it has to be the negative stuff, but I think mm-hmm. it needs to be equally okay to share the positive stuff, whether that's like celebrating or bragging or talking about what makes you feel good or successes, or, you know, there's so much, I think when people talk about being vulnerable, that we automatically think it has to be something negative or something painful, and it can be, but I think it's equally powerful to share the other side of that as well. And yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot lately.
0: Yeah, and there's definitely an expectation that when you come from like multiple marginalized identities, like I'm brown, I'm queer, I'm a daughter of Indian immigrants, especially queer folks are expected to perform trauma and immigrants are definitely like, I mean, we're in so many national conversations, kids of immigrants and immigrants, but there's so much magic when you're in spaces with people who are not afraid to be joyful. And we have so few, like, I feel like I have so few queer love stories or queer pleasure stories or queer joy stories, you know, in my life that are available on a, a like, more massive scale. Like Love, Simon, I mean, cheesy as it was, like, I loved it. It was, like, one of the few, like, Joyful queer stories I had seen in like a large scale, and so yeah, I I've been thinking a lot about that. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I also think like what I'm taking from what you're saying too is that we're not one dimensional, which obviously sounds maybe silly or too easy or cliche, but we're all complicated. It is possible to have pain and have sadness and have trauma and have any of these different things, and also to feel joyful. And it's possible to have those things at the same time. And I think there's. There's a lot of, I don't know, kind of policing around that kind of stuff too. If you're really expressing joy, it's like, well, does that mean that you don't care about these other things? It's like, no, it means that I can hold space for lots of different things and that it's just as fine to talk about joy.
0: Right. And it's, it's so complicated. I'm in a community of writers of color and so many of us are writing like very important work around like intergenerational trauma and like being a refugee and war and like abuse and like, um, domestic violence. And I write about the outdoors. Like I write about riding my bike across continents. And sometimes it feels a little silly because I'm like, really, I'm, t- like, I'm standing alongside people who are doing like really powerful, important work. And yeah, sometimes it does feel a little silly. But at the same time, I think it is important that I know that I've experienced certain things that have gotten me to this point that are the reason why I like left home in order to go ride my bike. And I I do share some of that, but I also think that what the action is of like the way that I've done it is really almost more important for people to know in order for them to see how they could find a path through. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I love that. Something that I've been thinking about personally, and I'm interested given what we're talking about, how you handle that is the balance between honesty and privacy. Like this is a lot for me. I mean, I've done personal story sharing of some kind on the internet basically since like 2007, which in internet years feels like many (laughs) lifetimes, it's like a really long time. And it's something that I love. It's something that I value. It's essentially the heart of what a lot of my work, both with the podcast and the writing that I do is based around, and I'm really committed to sharing honest stories and also It doesn't mean that it's not okay to have privacy and like thinking about those boundaries Mm. and stuff. And in terms of, you know, you just said, you know, someone messaged me and asked what was essentially a really heavy question, right? And Mm -hmm. we want to be helpful and we want to share. And I find it hard to say no sometimes when people ask me really pointed questions that aren't malicious, I don't think, in intent, but I'm like, you know, I just, I don't owe you this information. It's really Mm -hmm. invasive. So how do you deal with that?
0: I definitely like share what I want to (laughs) share. I mean, with that person, I was really thankful for the question because it got me thinking about it um, and about why I haven't written about like any pointed essays about those experiences in the outdoors. So I was thankful for the question, but I was just like, I don't really write about that. And here are some essays that um, I have seen other people write, like Vanessa Friedman's essay on uh, Straddle about toxic masculinity on the PCT. I was like, here's an essay that someone else has done the work on and that you might find important because I did. And I like pointed them to a couple other resources. So I like, yeah, like you said, it is, it is a little, there is a dance between what you're willing to share. I think it depends on who's asking for me too. There's a big difference for me when like a white man asks the question or a white woman asks the question versus like a, or cis straight white person asks the question versus like a queer person of color. And I'm willing to go further out of my way for queer folks of color, because I know that just fucking Googling and seeing like walls of white people doing the things that you want to do is really alienating. Mm -hmm. And so I know that they need me to be able to answer that question, honestly, for them so that they can see somebody who looks like them answering that question. And I think that to me is like a resource thing. Like, it is easier in this culture, in this country for white folks to see themselves in these spaces than it is for queer folks of color and for folks of color generally. So like, I, I like very pointedly like go further out of my way for queer folks of color than I will for other people. But honestly, I think also the way that I'm quote unquote branded on the internet or whatever, like my, my Instagram bio says brown queer travel writer. And I think that means that certain people reach out to me more than others, which is like why I, you know, used that wording. When I decided to use that wording, it was like, okay, well, do I want to like be only thought of as my identity markers was like one thought when I was talking with a friend and and they were like, well, like you're only going to be asked to do right around these identity markers if you do it that way. But at the same time, I want other queer folks of color to find me, and that makes me Googleable to the people who are searchable to the people who I want to be reaching out to. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of it for me.
1: Yeah, this idea that. I mean, obviously it is possible to have a firm boundary that's a boundary with everyone, but this idea of sort of different boundaries for different people, I think is a very human answer because it does make sense that there's, you know, more investment that you would want to make in certain folks or like certain places where you feel more comfortable sharing than others or certain emotional labor that feels more worth it than other times. And yeah, I think, I mean, that's like essentially me asking you, this was totally a selfish question because it's something that I'm really struggling with too. Like I just... It's funny, I don't really have a hard time saying no to things in general, right? Like I don't mind that. I'm like pretty good at speaking up for myself, but there is just something so intimate about someone asks a question or something that I wrote resonated with them and they Mm -hmm. want to go deeper the same way that you want to go deeper with your friends. Right. But to kind of Mm -hmm. have that distance of, Ooh, but we're not friends. And this is kind of a one-sided relationship and this doesn't feel good versus, you know, why does it feel okay when one person asks versus when another person asks? And Mm -hmm. it's uh, yeah, I think again, it's like more messy and complicated maybe than we want to admit. And that it's an ongoing process of, you don't really sometimes you don't know that a boundary feels like it's been crossed until it's been crossed, right, and then to have to say okay, what am I going to do differently next time and yeah, I love everything that you shared
0: yeah and i I've been thinking a lot about this while I've been on this tour like this three month tour around the country, like talking at different bike shops and outdoor stores like rei and bookshops too and so I'm in these spaces with sometimes fifteen sometimes like seventy five people in which I I'm telling a story, telling the story of biking across India as a queer brown daughter of immigrants and talking about homeland and talking about my parents' immigration story. And so I'm just like pouring out intimacy all the time (laughs) for the last three months. And often that's really one-sided. And I've never done anything like this before. I've never like done any public speaking gigs. I'm a nurse by profession. And so I've never like been in this position before. And so it's been really interesting to like witness my own like vulnerability hangovers afterwards because it's just like I'm giving so much to this crowd. And then they ask questions and I'm like very happy to answer. The questions has been an incredible process for me to like be challenged a little bit and like get a little deeper. And I really do love it. But then the next day is really hard and really exhausting. And I think there's something about like needing that exchange of intimacy. Uh, Like I'm giving so much intimate information out, but often like people aren't giving me anything back about themselves. And what's different when, it's different when after the event, like folks of color or immigrants, kids of like any race are lingering around and then chatting with me. And then they start sharing their own stories and their own relationship to Homeland. And then that feels actually a lot better. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there's a little bit more closure at the end of the night. And I don't feel as bad the next day. So there's something about like needing to be in spaces in which we're mutually curious about each other that I think I need to find ways to replicate when I'm doing events, you know? Yeah. Which is the same thing about, I was talking about this with my friend uh, Yoda who I've been with for last week about how biking across the US, I talk a lot, I have talked before in other interviews about how, like being raised on the East Coast meant I was told that, you know, growing crossing the country, the middle of the country would be dangerous and xenophobic and racist. And I had all these ignorances around what real life in the middle of the country would be like. And then when I was actually sitting in spaces with people, like sitting in a gas station and people would cut roll up and like take me to their home and offer me a place to stay and feed me. And how that felt, sometimes they would ask uh, like questions about my family or, questions about what my parents think or whatever questions about India and how when that that would feel better than say if anybody had been asking me those questions in New York City in a city with like millions of brown people those questions would have been so inappropriate to me but when I'm in the space and being literally fed by people (laughs) and housed by this family or whatever my, I'm learning from them as much as they're learning from me. I'm learning about their town. I'm learning about their way of life, which is so different from mine. And so there's this kind of mutual curiosity in which we can have a real exchange. And that has been really hard to find in social media. <laughs> and it's been really hard to find in like events that I've been doing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also think too, you know, with this idea of like honesty versus privacy, there like when you're going to be sharing a story, especially like you said, you, you know, went on this tour and shared, I would assume like virtually the same story or the same couple of stories over and over and over. And I think that's common for folks, like whether it's book tour or, you know, whatever the things are that you get known for, that you almost have to create a little bit of distance between yourself and the story that you're telling. And then it's like, that just makes sense. Right. Mm
0: -hmm. But then like
1: the story sort of becomes a commodity and then it's like, do you still relate to it? Or maybe I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. making sense, but I think about this too, that it's like, I still want to stay like connected to myself and stay authentic. And that means like some things don't get shared in real time and some things need to stay private. Or, you know, when you just tell a story over and over, it's like, oh, is, yeah. is this even like mine anymore? And sometimes the answer is no. And that's fine. Like the story goes out into the world and people make of it what they do, but that it's, yeah, I think, I mean, especially for people who do, who create, like any kind of creative work that's somewhat memoir style, right? Like based on your experiences, mm-hmm. but even just maybe if someone doesn't do that professionally, but is using social media that way, like this question and this like conversation that you and I are having, I think is relatively universal. Like we all have to decide how much of ourselves we're willing and able to give and share like with any yeah. given person or group of people or at any given moment. And that that's just like sort of an ongoing conversation. It's made me stop and uh, reevaluate sort of my expectations and assumptions about the people whose work that I consume and follow, Mm. right? Like people I've been following for years, it's easy to feel like we're friends and we're not. (laughs) Do you know Mm, what I mean? And so for me to be like, huh, why do I want access to more than they're willing to give me? That's interesting, right? Right. Or like to just think about not just who we are as creators, but like who we are as consumers of other
0: people's work. Totally. Wow. Yeah, for sure. So pivoting a
1: little bit, um, you obviously mentioned biking a couple of times, which is one of the things I'm super excited to talk to you about. And I guess maybe the easiest place to start. So going back to 2014, that's when you cycled alone, right? From San Diego to Montreal.
0: Yeah. And that's so i say that was a so- <laughs> solo ride because I planned it solo. I did have some friends join me along the way for shorter sections. And I, ha- I, you know, I like met people along the road and biked for a couple of days with a few people. Yeah. So I rode from San Diego up the West coast to Vancouver and then across parts of the U S and Canada to Montreal. So tell
1: me the story of how you wound up on that adventure.
0: Oh yeah. So I had actually done a previous ride in 2011 with my friend, Sheena, we rode from New Jersey to Nashville. And that was totally like a, I liked biking. I wanted to go on a long ride before, you know, after college, before starting my first job. And so I literally posted on Facebook and was like, hey, would anybody want to ride on bike ride with me? My friend, my high school friend, Sheena said yes. But I had a start date for my first job lined up. So we rode for about a month and then I had to, you know, get back to Jersey and move to my first job. And so I wanted to that whole time I was in Washington, D.C. I was working. I was um, learning how to be a nurse, basically. And I wanted to go on another bike tour, but I didn't want to have an end date. And so uh, after two years, which is two years is basically like the minimum to be considered a competent ICU nurse, intensive care nurse. So after that two year period, I became a travel nurse, which means that I take like three to six month contracts in different parts of the country. And I became a travel nurse for, I think I worked for about six months. And then, yeah, like planned this trip over like while on night shift. (laughs) from San Diego to Montreal. And literally the only points I had down were San Diego, Vancouver, and Montreal. I wanted to be able to like sit in spaces with people and have them tell me where to go and be able to make as many detours as I want. Or if my body was hurting, just be able to stop along the way. And yeah, I, there are like lots of things that I have thought about over the last few years about like the how and why that trip came to be. And I think a lot of it has to do with nursing in a way that as an ICU nurse, I see people who are young and healthy, like, uh, you know, like in their late twenties and training for a marathon and who come in and have like very late stage cancers and they'll cut, they'll literally walk into the ER and die within a week. And I think that has been really powerful to me and important to recognize how You know, like our time here is limited, and just be a kick in the butt to do the things that I want to do.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, obviously that makes sense. Yeah, I can't get over the fact that you just said that you had three points, like three cities picked, and that you were just like, I'm gonna figure out. Like, (laughs) they're like obsessive planner part of me is like, I don't. My brain, you just like broke my brain. So, (laughs) did you like literally start out without? You were like, you didn't have a route planned. You didn't like know where you were gonna stay. Like, you were
0: just you what? Tell me more about that. (laughs) So So one thing that I do before every long trip uh, and, and I've only realized that I do this lately, but one thing that I have done before every long trip, like I said, like on my 2011 bike tour with Sheena, like I put up a Facebook post, like I've always used social media as a tool for travel. And so I, before the 2014 trip, I put up a blog post being like, Hey, I know like GoFundMe or Kickstarter is like a really big thing right now, but I'm a nurse and I actually don't need your money, but I need a safety and I need people who are willing to like be a point person in different parts of the country if if something were to go wrong or if I got sick or if, you know, God forbid anything were to happen to me. I want to be able to feel like even if I don't really have a safety net, I want to feel like I have a safety net because, you know, like my ability to do things that seem ridiculous. is <laughs> predicated on my ability to feel safe when I, when I am in these places. So I really did not have, I put that post up and then, you know, some friends reached out who lived in San Diego. So they became the people who I flew to. And my friend, Anne, I rode California with my high school friend, Anne, and she and I sat like, on the floor of the apartment that they had just, our friends had just moved into with no furniture. And we pulled out a map and we were like, oh shit, Joshua Tree is really close. Do you want to go there? So we like rode, we rode to Joshua Tree for the first week and then rode back to the coast, which was like the most ass kicking first week. Like it was so silly that we did that. This was before Google Maps had like real bike directions with elevation profiles. And so we had no idea that we were like crossing the coastal range in order to get to Joshua Tree. (laughs) So we like went across the mountain range and had no idea what we were doing. And then we got back to the coast and we used Warm Showers. Warm Showers is like a hosting website for um, people who um, who are bicycling. So we stayed with people in LA. I also did this like also through my blog, I guess, at that point. I, like, reached out to friends and asked whether they knew uh, queer folks of color who would be along my route, and one of the, those people was in L.A., their name's uh, Laura Luna, and Luna agreed to do an interview with me, and so this became something that I did kind of across the country, as I would reach out to queer folks of color and ask them to sit down and interview them, and at that point, I didn't, like, publicly identify as queer. I had known I was queer for a long time, but I was kind of afraid to say that out loud. And so like through that, that gave me a little bit of sense of like, okay, well, I'm in this city for a purpose. Like here's, I can, I'll spend a couple extra days so that I can, you know, connect with this human. And then, yeah, I would just like, basically just take people's advice of where I should go and stay. Sometimes it was like, oh, there's a warm showers host in this town. I'll stay there. And there's also this organization called the Adventure Cycling Association that they make cross-country bike routes. And so sometimes I went on their routes because a bicyclist would gift me a map. And so I'd be like, okay, I'll I'll go on an ACA route for this time, this section.
1: I love this story so much. I, I mean, it gives me a lot of anxiety to not have more plans than that. And also it sounds really fun. I thought about this a lot when I was on the PCT this year that, you know, when you said it was a, your trip was a solo trip and that you started planning it alone, but that other people got involved, like this idea that a solo adventure is never actually a solo yeah. adventure. I thought about that a lot, especially on the PCT specifically, I wound up getting some incredibly lucky hitches from people in terms mm. of, I mean, like. I don't know, maybe like 15 hours of hitching total, like across, you know, different things. And some people that would be like, oh, I wasn't going there, but sure, I'll drive you guys two and a half hours, you know, Mm. whatever. And things where I couldn't believe it because I don't pick up hitchhikers and I have a lot of trail karma to pay back now. But this idea of like the kindness of strangers and relying on that, and it made me start thinking about the rarity. And I don't know if this is an American thing or what, but like the how rare it is to have like direct, direct asks, like, for people that you don't really know, like, Hey, stranger on the road, like, are you going to this city? Do you want to have like a dirty stranger in your car while you go there? Right. And like, <laughs> I almost think a lot of times people said yes. Cause they didn't really like, it, they were so shocked that someone was asking. Right. It's like, mm. we, we want to be polite. We want to whatever that they were like, well, sure. I, I guess I have space in the car. So like, yeah, I guess you can come. Right. That is kind of like, <laughs> I don't know, but there is something about that, about relying on just people's in general willingness to help. I think for the most part, we want to help each other. And if there's an ask that I can meet that someone needs a friend or a friend of a friend or something that would be a cool opportunity, like think people are more willing to say yes than we realize.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that. So like a couple things as to from what you just said that I really connect with, but like the idea that going on a solo adventure is really never a solo adventure because or like a solo bike ride or a solo hike because partially to me, I think about it in relation to biking because you are so vulnerable when you're on a bike with traffic. And your body is so exposed to the world. And like that itself is an act of trusting other people um, to be on a bike in the world, to like believe that somebody is not gonna go out of their way to hate you, that there aren't, that a drunk driver isn't gonna come out of nowhere and kill you. And I've been incredibly lucky on my bicycle. But I do think a lot about how, like even if I'm not... Explicitly asking somebody for help, I am implicitly asking like the world to not harm me. Mm-hmm. You know, like every single driver, I'm asking them to pay attention. And so we are all really, really always relying on each other. There's totally something else I wanted to say in relation to what you just. We <laughs> forget. That's okay. If it comes back, it comes back. Yeah. So some
1: just like specific. So I'm not a cyclist at all, and yeah. I, so I'm curious. Like, tell me about a time that you had a problem with the bike. Like I feel like I would have trouble relying on like, oh, this thing has all these parts and it needs to work. (laughs) And maybe that sounds like insane. But
0: yeah. I mean, so I'm like a terrible bike mechanic. When I went on that 2014 tour, I had I had done work on my bike before. I had in college, I had been involved with the bike library. And so I had built a bike before. But that had been it had been years since I had even changed a flat. And so when I went on that tour, I had, you know, a hand pump to repair flats. I had a patch kit that I had bought five years ago and had never used. I had a couple spare tubes, but I didn't carry a spare tire. I didn't carry much in the way of bike repair. And my guideline now is like don't carry anything you don't know how to use. Like if I if, that, if people would say, oh you know, carry an extra carry extra spokes and I like don't know how to change a spoke. So I'm not going to carry it. <laughs> yeah. When I got my first flat in Washington state, it was right after I had been to a bike shop and they had reduced the tire pressure on my tires. And so they were like, oh, you're, you're touring. And so you can ride at a lower pressure. And I didn't know anything about tire pressure. I still don't really know anything about tire pressure, but that day, like not, not a couple hours later, I ended up getting a flat. And I was just on the side of the road, like trying to use my freaking hand pump, not realizing that like 99% of hand pumps, like basically don't work. Like they are not functional to get your tube to the amount of pressure you need for a road bike or for a touring bike. So I'm like pushing away, like trying to put elbow grease into this and like super stressed out. And a, a like a road bicyclist comes up and he is like, Are you okay? And I was just like near tears. And I was like, I don't know, I got a flat. I don't know how to change it. And being really dramatic. <laughs> he was just like, Okay, I'll help you. And he walked me through it and it was super helpful. He was, you know, made sure that I didn't inflate it without checking the inside of the tire to make sure that there wasn't anything poking through. And then um helped me like just set the tube into the tire. And he had these uh, CO2 cartridges, which are really common. A lot of people carry them, but I had never seen it before. I would never seen a CO2 cartridge. I never heard of it. I'm, I'm like, have never been in the biking world really. So I was so surprised. He pulled out a CO2 cartridge. He inflated my tube, and I, as I like rode away, I was so thankful. But the bike still didn't feel perfect. Within the next few miles, I hit a gas station and was able to like inflate it some more. And then like the second flat of my trip. I got I was in Montana and I couldn't get my tire back on the rim of my bike. So like at this point I'm like, okay, well, the British guy taught me how to change a tube. I should be able to change a tube, right? And so I like get 99% of the way through and then I just can't get the tire back on the rim of the wheel. And so I call my boyfriend at the time and I was like, "Hey, like I don't know I'm having trouble." and he's just like trying to talk me down because I was anxious and stressed, mm-hmm. and within not a minute of being on the phone, a white guy in a white pickup truck like stopped and got out of his car and was like, "Do you need help?" And I was like, "Yes, and he just did it for me like pulled, he didn't you know know how anything about bikes, but he I told him like what I needed to have happen, and he just did it for me. And then I called my boyfriend at the time again to update him. And in the amount of time I was on the phone with him, three more people stopped for me on this like Montana country road. And were like, Hey, I see that you're on the phone. Do you need help? Do you need help? Do you need help? And the last one ended up being like, Hey, uh, I live up the road a half a mile. Like if you want to come by for dinner, or if you want to camp in our yard, if you want to stay the night, you're welcome to. And I ended up like having one of the best nights on my trip with that family. <laughs>
1: I love this so much. It's like this idea that first of all, it's okay to ask for help, which maybe sounds silly to say it, but like the more comfortable I have gotten saying, I have no idea what I'm doing. Like the better my life has been. I think there was a period of time where I am not that ignorance is a great thing overall. I'm not saying that, but I didn't want to appear like I didn't know everything, which is incredibly silly, but that just being comfortable saying like, yeah, I don't know how to do this. Can you help me? Like can lead to some of the best interactions and also can lead to learning something. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. Right. And, but I, what I love so much about this attitude, I mean, obviously you have so many thousands and thousands and uh, like of miles of biking experience at this point. And even to hear you talk of, Hey, I'm still not like an expert bike mechanic. And this sort of this attitude of you'll figure it out. Like I've been thinking about that so much, like we're so afraid sometimes to make changes or to go on adventures or to do, and it doesn't have to be, you know, a multi-month, multi-thousand mile thing to count as like something that's scary or adventurous. But like, so often I feel like we hold ourselves back because of all of the potential unknown. And it's like, sir, learn as much as you can, like research some stuff, like, you know, be prepared in the way you need to be prepared, but you can't know what you don't know and you'll figure it out. And I just, I feel like I need to tell myself this like every single
0: day. (laughs) Yeah, you'll totally figure it out. And there's something about like, I don't know if it's America, American culture or capitalism or what, but there's something about like, I feel like we don't give ourselves a lot of permission to just like be playful with what we do. And it's often like, we have to be the best at it. We have to be experts. We have to master it. And I think I'm really good at bike touring the way I bike tour. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think I need mastery over that. I don't need to be an expert in it. Um, I just like to do what I like to do. And yeah, I don't need to be like a professional bike mechanic in order to, in order to like ride long distances. Like in India, I didn't get a single flat, you know, like I had such little bike problems. And I think that's something that really intimidates people about like biking and bike touring and bike packing is like, oh, you need to know all these things. And you should know some things like I'm not, like you said, it's like, I'm not encouraging people to be ignorant, but I think to me, what is important is figuring out what makes you feel safe. I talk about safety a lot and how, like for me, safety means creating these networks of people across the country or across wherever I'm going, where I can feel like if I run into a problem, I have somebody to call or if i'm in a big city and i'm not comfortable with staying in a hostel or whatever that i can reach out to somebody but safety for another person might mean knowing their bike inside and out you know <laughs> like safety might mean feeling like expert over whatever thing it is and so i'm not saying like don't i'm not saying resist that urge to learn about your bike or learn about whatever it is you're doing but just if it's if it doesn't come naturally to you or if you're not that interested in it like there's no
1: pressure. Yeah. No, I mean, I I think that that's, it's so brilliant. This idea that there isn't only one way to do something. So maybe someone does want to learn about their bike, for example, inside and out. And that's like their entrance point into then wanting to do this. That's awesome. That's not what you want to do. So like you said, you're, you're great at doing bike touring the way that you like to do it. And so like feeling the freedom to sort of take ownership of what it looks like for you, I think is really powerful. And then I also think that question that you asked this idea of like, what do you need in order to feel safe? Because so much of I think the fear of the, of an unknown situation or like a new, whether it's a new job or a creative project or relationship or you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And when it's just this kind of like vague, amorphous, like fear, that is really hard to overcome. But having to actually ask yourself like the specific question of what do I need to feel safe? And then having to actually answer that, I think oftentimes we realize it's not as many things as we might think, right? And so this idea, like I thought about this a lot. You're hearing you talk about getting started with essentially long distance biking, like resonates with me so much with long distance hiking, because I was completely new. I mean, I grew up in Manhattan and London. I had never done anything outdoorsy. Mm. I had never gone camping ever in my life. And so it was like, everything was new. So there was no way I was going to learn all of it before I went on the first trip. So it was like, okay, what do I, I don't know that I asked myself that exact question. What do I need to feel safe? But I think that is the question I was asking myself without knowing I was asking it. It's like, Okay, I need to learn how to do these couple of things, or this yeah. is the thing that scares me the most. So what's my contingency for this? And and then just go. Right. And like, and that's when the you'll figure it out thing comes in. But I think there's a lot of power in sort of forcing yourself to get specific about your fears and not judge whatever the answer is. Because it's easy to say, you know, the thing that I need to feel safe, like, oh, that's silly. I shouldn't need that. Well, that's not helpful. Mm. If you need it, give it to yourself, right? Like give yeah. yourself what you need and like move forward from there.
0: Yeah. And it's so individualized. Like on my, my 2014 tour riding with my friend Anne in California, it would, we had both, you know, I had gone on that 2011 tour with my friend Sheena and she had done a little bit of bike touring before. So we just did, had different camping styles. Like I was really comfortable with stealth camping, like right off the road. If I was like covered by a couple of trees or, you know, like maybe a hundred feet off the road. But she would want to be like deep in the woods because she was worried people would stumble across us. And so what we really had to negotiate, like what made us feel safe when it came to stealth camping every night. And then if if I compromised her feeling of safety by saying, like, oh, well, let's just camp right off the road, she just wouldn't sleep that night very well. And like your travel partner not sleeping affects you so much, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, okay, well, if I wanna make this better for me. Like actually catering to the other person's idea of safety is really
1: important. Yeah. And I think it's funny that you brought up the sleep thing because I, as you know, basically anyone listening to this who has <laughs> known me for a while knows like I have a really, I'm just not a great sleeper in general. And I have a yeah. very hard time sleeping in the back country. And that that was essentially the reason that I got off trail um, on the mm. BCT was because I just was the cumulative sleep deprivation was making me like sick. Basically, I felt horrible. Yeah. And so my poor hiking partner, yes. And shout out to the people who still hike with you when you're tired. But- <laughs> yeah so even that having to say like, okay, what do, what are the conditions that for the most part will lead to me having better sleep? Like what ups the chances? And I need more things, for example, than like my hiking partner needed, or then maybe like Mm -hmm. some people can just hike until, you know, past dark and stop and throw up a tent and shove food in their mouth and get in it and go to sleep. And I absolutely cannot do that. I need transition Mm. time. I need to like read for a little while. I need like there's all these things. And so I'm like, well, yeah, that means I just have to be done earlier. Right. Like, so I have to give myself what I need. And I've spent so much time being like, well, what's wrong with you that you can't just, Mm. you know, fill in the blank. And this, it doesn't just apply to hiking, but it's like, I don't know, being honest, I think it's true with self-care. I think it's true with our routines, with our mental health, with anything. It's like, what do you actually need? And what if you just gave yourself permission to have that?
0: Yeah. And I think, especially as women and especially for folks with like multiple marginalized identities, we're not encouraged to advocate for ourselves in that way. Um, We're not encouraged to ask ourselves those questions or to believe that our needs are worthwhile. That is seen. We are told that then we're being a burden or especially in outdoors culture, then we're we're told we're not tough enough or if we can't go fast or if we can't make those miles or there's, while biking, there's always this, there's always the people who are going to ride like, 120 miles a day and just like haul ass. And that's just not, that's like, first of all, not how I want to ride. And second of all, that like culture of competition of like, oh, well, what are you carrying? What is this? What is that? Like, oh, you're carrying, you know, this isn't light enough. Like that's really alienating. That's really alienating for folks who don't have the money and like the, in order to access those like ultra light materials and it's really alienating if you haven't seen yourself in outdoors culture to begin with to then have people be like, "Oh well, if you're not doing this my exact way, then you're not good enough and i'm not you're not worth talking to or you're not you're not doing it right like your existence is not right, and it's just like that is something that I actively <laughs> try to to fight and that's part of why I wanted to do the storytelling tour is because I wanted to show people that like I'm just a fucking asthmatic from New Jersey who likes to ride my bike. And I do these absurd things that look really incredible on paper, but I'm, it's like often a struggle and I do it in my own way. I'm not riding big miles every day. Mm -hmm.
1: Oh my God. I'm so glad that you brought this up. It's it's funny. It just reminded me when you were talking questions that I get around fear and people will say like, you know, how are you not afraid all the time? How did you get over your fear of this type of stuff? And I always laugh and I'm like, I'm literally terrified every single night. Like something oh, might hit my face. Like, what are you saying? Of course I'm afraid, right? So like, even now it was like <laughs> funny, but this idea of, I mean, we're talking through the lens of outdoors culture, but of hierarchy, like when it comes specifically, like you said, the obsession with ultralight gear. I mean, yes, it is easier on your body to carry something that is not as heavy as something else, but the accessibility to those things is not universal for everyone. And I remember I met someone on trail who was very like, well, I have a seven pound base weight and like you're carrying too much stuff. And I'm like, I'm really not interested in your opinion, right? Whether yeah. it's, you know, you it's bring so the gear you have. so
0: yeah, say like, say stuff like
1: that. Right, totally. That like, whether it's you don't have the funds to buy really expensive stuff or you don't want to always buy new things or you need these couple of things to feel safe that maybe someone else doesn't need, right? That it's like really no one's business like what you're carrying. yeah. And especially on the physical side of things too, the idea that the only thing that like quote counts is like doing big miles or doing the hardest, like Mm. most extreme version. I thought about this a lot when I was a runner that like, you know, oh, I'm just doing a 5k. Like if you're not doing a marathon or ultra marathon, like it's not valid. (sighs) And I, it's like so messed up and like on trail when the PCT and the JMT, they like are basically the same trail for like a couple hundred miles. And I would meet people who would say like, oh, I'm just doing the JMT. And every single time I'd be like, no, like that's incredible, right? Like it's not, it's Mm -hmm. not like, because you're not doing something longer that it's not valid. Like I would, I don't know, like you can go out for a night, you can car camp, you can do like whatever version of it. It's not lesser because it's not as hardcore, you know?
0: Yeah. And that's something that's like really pervasive in the marketing too. Like there's this um, couple that brands themselves as pass less peddled on the internet and they had this really funny I thought it was funny like hand-drawn graph of like the number of people who bike and then the number of people who are road bikers like extreme road bikers extreme mountain bikers and then like the rest of us and (laughs) and then comparing that to the marketing and the way that all the marketing dollars go to the extreme road bikers and the extreme mountain bikers so it's like oh well then if that's all you're seeing in marketing, like why would anybody think that they can do that? Like why would anybody think that if they could, you know, ride across the country or go on a long bike ride, if the only thing you're seeing marketing wise is like these people who exist so outside of your reality.
1: hmm yeah, I had the experience on the PCT of I had never hiked a thirty mile day until then, and that's something you hear about wow. a lot from the like communities, like oh, people doing thirties, and there's just like a lot of talk about that type of stuff. And I didn't realize until I did it a couple times that I can do it, and I hate it. It's terrible. <laughs> I was miserable, and so yeah. you know, we would I would meet people on the JMT who were like, oh, well, we're only doing like ten miles a day, and like that sounds glorious. That's my like, give yeah. me that. That sounds amazing, and. So just trying to like, I don't know, change, it's like a good check for me too, of like changing language around that type of stuff or the way I talk about it. Or I don't know, I mean, I don't know if, if I'm like making sense saying this, but I think it's just, it's so important that there's many different ways to do stuff and no one way is more valid than anything else.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I try to really avoid gear talk because of that. But then when, like, like I said earlier, like depending on who's asking, like if it is like, folks of color asking me about gear or like what i use i'm like okay well if you're planning a trip like yes i'll tell you what gear i use but like generally speaking i don't really talk about my gear because i don't think it's interesting but like, mm-hmm. people love talking about gear and i'm just like eh like i bought i have bought the stuff that i looked up online that seems like the gold standard so i bought it and it works and that's what's important you know yeah it doesn't have to be fancy
1: so on that trip in 2014, how long were you out on the road? I was on the road for six months. Ooh, okay. Long time. So yeah, then I'm really curious how it felt to come home.
0: Yeah, it was really intense. So I was in Montreal and then I went back to New Jersey and ended up getting a job pretty soon after that um, as a travel nurse job in New York City. And that was like really a culture shock going from a like on bike life to like commuting. It was basically winter for most of the time that I first got there. And yeah, so basically getting to New York City winter, commuting on the subway, being a nurse again, which is a really, I, I love nursing so much, but as nurses, we're just taught to customer service people all the time. We're taught to customer service, like our patients, the families, the doctors, our coworkers, and especially as a traveler, like, for those first six six weeks, pretty much, uh, people often don't know your name or don't know what, like who you are at all. And so you are still trying to gain their trust and prove that you're a competent nurse. So there's a lot of facades that you have to keep up. And nursing is a profession, like probably a lot of professions, that people go into it for many different reasons. And I got into nursing because I wanted to be able to travel and I wanted to be in like a a helping profession. But a lot of people get into it for the money and a lot of people get into it because their parents wanted them to, or it's just the cultural norm and they don't actually really care about the patients or care about people generally. And so moving back to New York after this long bike tour was a culture shock in a lot of ways. I was, you know, getting to and from the subway meant getting like catcalled every day. Being on the subway platform often felt unsafe because there were all these stories of people getting pushed onto the subway tracks at that time and of brown folks getting pushed onto the subway tracks. Then, and then going into work, like my patients would ask, there was one night that I vividly remember one night shift. In which I had four patients. I wasn't in the ICU. I was in the step down unit. And I had four patients, and three of my four patients either asked me about India or made some very weird comment about India, like just casually being like, oh, I watched this movie about India once. And I was just like, really? Like, I am in the city with so many brown folks and just all like, just they should know better, these like white patients should know better, you know, than mm-hmm. to ask somebody who's literally being paid to take care of you about to like perform my, my race for you. Like, no, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. So was that aspect of it, of being like tokenized professionally. And then, you know, and then because my coworkers come from all over the place, there would just be like casually homophobic comments thrown around or, um, just a, a lot of uncomfortable moments, And there were there are so many things I love about New York. And there's so many things I loved about certain coworkers. But it was a really hard thing to do to go from riding solo to being in a city with nine million people on an island. Yeah. Yeah,
1: those aren't the same. I can definitely (laughs) imagine. So so what did you do next? How long did you stay in New York after that?
0: Yeah, I stayed for six months. Pretty much essentially like as soon as I got back, I was like, I can't deal with this. Like I I need to be outside. And on my bike tour, I had met a couple really incredible people, one being this um, woman who hosted me or a couple who hosted me in northern Wisconsin. She had been a bike mechanic for about 20 years in Alaska, and she just talked about Alaska. She talked about how much she loved it. She had a really good read on bike culture and was like talking about like how toxic masculinity is pervasive in my culture and how she dealt with that as a as a mechanic she was in her 60s and I was just like I want to be like this woman when I grow up (laughs) so I yeah I like maybe a little insanely like figured out how to buy a car that summer and drive to Alaska so like I got to New York by Halloween that year. And then by Memorial Day, the next year, I bought a car and like a few weeks later, drove, started my drive to Alaska to work.
1: I love that. So, okay. So then, and then a couple years later, it was what in 2017 that you biked across India?
0: Yeah. So this past year. Okay. So
1: I've heard you say that you find emotional preparation to be much more important for you than physical preparation for bike journeys. And I'd love to hear about how, like what that emotional preparation looked like for that trip, especially since you had the experience of like previous long trips, like what, what did that look like in the lead up to the biking trip in India?
0: Yeah. So I, I was so stressed. It was about, so my travel partner, Daniel is somebody who had done many long trips around the world. He's like a, an adventurer, basically like every, every few years he'll go on a big adventure. So he's very casual about it, right? like even more casual than I am. And I hadn't done a whole lot of international travel. I did one trip in college to Peru and Colombia and I had been to India many times, but I always had like family with me in India. I had traveled. Actually, that's not true. I traveled once with my friend Sheena for a few weeks in South India together, but it was still like, you know, places where I generally knew it was, you know, a part of India that's pretty close to where I'm from. And as in the lead up to this trip, Daniel was super casual about everything. And I was like getting really stressed. Like he didn't have much, um, bike touring experience. He didn't know how, he didn't know how to change a flat, for example, he had no like bike mechanic skills. He's to this day does not own a bicycle. (laughs) And so he, he was like, I felt this great weight of responsibility of both of our bikes, of being able to figure out what gear we needed. And so I was talking to my friend on the phone one day and she was like, why don't you just make a list? And I was like, okay, I'll make a list. I made a list of every single thing that I would need to feel prepared and ready, which included things like, like the gear list, which included like a water filter, a camp stove, get like Googling. I, it, it, a lot of these preparation things were research. So like Googling whether that what we needed shots before we went. Like a lot of those preparation things were actually research. Mm -hmm. And then some of it was about my body. So like I have, I'm like a fallible human and I have a broken body like most of us do. (laughs) And I have had for the last four years ish, like this nerve pain in my hands and some some doctors blame it on biking. Some do not. I don't blame it on biking because it doesn't happen when I bike. It happens when I'm at work as a nurse. And so I get like numbness and tingling. I also get cramping pain and it'll shoot up to my shoulders. And so a big part of what I I personally wanted to be able to do before this trip was like take care of myself in a way that I would feel physically prepared. Mm-hmm. So I started doing like acupuncture and yoga and like just a lot of things, a lot of stretching, a lot of things I like research topical ointments and stuff to put on my hands, just a lot of things to be able to help me feel like all the ways that I could fail in this would be at least thought through. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that we walked into this knowing that we would succeed. We like, we're on the plane and we were like, we don't know if this is going to work out. We don't know if this is really going to happen. We might get two weeks into it and be like, fuck this. There's no way we're riding another mile. But just being able to do that research and feel like I did everything I possibly could to make me feel prepared and safe. Um, And that doesn't mean that I'm doing everything I possibly could for the average person. Like Probably the average person would want a lot more bike experience than I have, Um, but doing everything that I thought I needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is really individualized. It's related to my specific body and my specific anxieties.
1: Yeah. Even that acknowledgement that of the conversation that you and your friend had of, Hey, we might get two, week in, two weeks into this and be like, fuck this. You know, like, I think yeah. there's, there's something that's very real in that of, you know, especially with big adventures or really anything. It's how I felt when I started the podcast. Like I thought about this for at least a year before I did it. And mm-hmm. I was really interested in this medium and having these kinds of conversations that weren't really advice giving, and that gave space to like talk about lots of different subjects and topics. And, you know, my fear was, well, what if I start this and I don't like it? And I've committed to this thing publicly. And it's what I wound up essentially doing was publicly committing to, Hey, I'm going to do one season. And if I like it, if you like Mm -hmm. it, like then it will keep going. Like I had to sort of treat it as an experiment because I think so often the truth is no matter how much you research, no matter how much you fantasize, you don't know how you're going to feel about something until you're actually doing that thing. and. Like I remember on the PCT, I met some folks in, you know, who were also southbounding and had started in Washington and were like, you know, the only thing that is going to make me get off trail is if I get like brutally injured and like, I'm making it to Mexico no matter what. And maybe that approach is helpful for some folks, like mm-hmm. having that level of like no plan B commitment. And maybe sometimes that can be helpful to like have a lot of grit about things. But I just found that really overwhelming. Like, what if you don't like it in a month mm-hmm. or, you know, like it's like forcing yourself to do something when it turns out to not be the right fit. I don't know. like, So I love hearing you say like, yeah, we were planning this and we wanted to do the whole thing and we were committed, but like, you
0: don't know, sometimes you want to go home, right? That's fine too. Yeah. Right. And like Danny and I, I, I feel like Danny and I had a really great traveling relationship. And like, what if we hadn't, right? Like if we like realized that bike touring together was not something that we were capable of right like that could have been a real outcome and yeah I I feel very grateful for him as a travel partner but there's so many things that could have gone wrong and so many reasons why we could have quit and it's like a little bit of it's pretty mind-blowing I think for both of us to imagine the way that we actually finished
1: mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh with the twenty fourteen trip, you mentioned, you know, you had three cities in mind and the route kind of came to be based on that. Was it the same in India that you thought, okay, I want to do these couple of specific things and then we'll figure it out? Like how did you plan the route for that
0: trip? Yeah, it was pretty similar. We didn't really plan the route. We so I I put on the like and and I we looked in preparation for this storytelling tour, we like pulled up I pulled up the um, the email chain. And you can see that within a week we had like pretty much determined a route that would be very close to what we ended up doing. And that seems really absurd to me because we really did not plan the route. <laughs> mm-hmm. I put Ladakh on the as the top point where we would end up flying into. So that's a town in the Himalayas that's renowned for its proximity. It's in the Himalayas. And so it's like proximal to all these gorgeous mountain summits that people do these multi-day treks to and yeah it's just stunning so we flew into Ladakh the only other points we had were Puri on that original map Puri is where my friend Sheena's family is from so I had heard of Puri and I was like okay I'll put this on this map and then the other point we had was Kerala which is where my family is from and so when we plant when we were thinking of it we there were so many nights in hotel rooms in the Himalayas where we would pull out our map and be like, oh my God, we got almost, like we have gotten not far at all today. Like we, I was drawing with Sharpie a like black line of where we were going. And the black line would be like less than a centimeter long because we had made such little progress. And we would just be like, okay, well, like we may be in the Himalayas forever. Like we may <laughs> never get out of this. <laughs> So we couldn't even imagine what would happen once we got out of the mountains to be able to route plan.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So eventually we got out of the mountains, we got to a town called Jammu, and Jammu is a, a major city and we had a warm showers host uh, and he sat down with us and basically like gave us a bunch of recommendations and we told him, you know, we told him that Daniel had never been to the Taj Mahal. So like the Taj Mahal was vaguely on our list. So he gave and, and we wanted to ride. Like, then we were like, well, why don't we ride through the Rajasthani Desert? It's one of the biggest deserts in the world. So we told him that we wanted to ride through the desert. So he gave us, like, a route um, on our map. And that became basically the foundation for what we would do in every city. We would pull out our map for our hosts and say, okay, well, we want to go here eventually. Like, how do you recommend us getting there? <laughs> and they would usually give us really good advice. Um, and we also used an app called Maps Me which is used, I guess, by a lot of backpackers and like people who travel, I guess, international backpackers, not in the through-hiking sense, backpackers in the like international traveling sense uh, because you can like download the maps pretty easily. And Daniel also used um, Google Maps. So we had like multiple ways to make routes on the go, but we really, really relied on local knowledge and asking people like, oh, should we take this road or this road?
1: there's something so fun in that too. And like, obviously people who grew up in a place and who are really familiar with a place, like they're going to tell you things, whether it's, Hey, you should eat food from here, or, you know, this is a really pretty like viewpoint or whatever. Yeah, Yeah. Being able to tap into that. And yeah, it's, I I'm planning, so I'm doing a couple of, uh, hosting a couple of retreats in 2019 that I'm working on like the plans and stuff for right now. And one of them is in the UK. And I'm going to go over for a couple of months and try to do a bunch of traveling. I lived in London for six years when I was younger, but didn't do a lot of travel around the UK. Um, mm-hmm. And that's something that I've always wanted to do. And same thing, there's a couple places on the list of for whatever reason I have a fascination with or that I really want to go. And yet I'm trying to kind of walk the line between spontaneity and the the benefits price-wise of advanced planning. Like sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it is cheaper to like plan and book stuff in advance. And mm-hmm. so trying to be like, how much am I willing to just show up and see what happens? <laughs>
0: you know, Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. And relying on that local knowledge also helps like destigmatize. I think like there was a point where we wanted to ride from uh, Varanasi to Kolkata, which was about, I want to say like 500 kilometers. And we sat down with our host in Varanasi, and they told us that we would be riding across two states, one state of which I had never heard of, because it's like relatively new in the history of India's political borders. Um, and the other state I had heard of, but i had only heard of in the context of violence, in the context of these like violent uprisings that were happening primarily in the 80s, in which a lot of landowners were being killed by people who, like, were trying to overthrow the uh, the like wealth disparities. So there was like a rebellion, and that became like the the reputation of this place. And uh, so when I found out that we'd be going there, our host was just like, "Oh, it's fine. Like Bihar's no big deal. Like people are nice there. It's not met, it's not like it was before. Like that it just has a bad reputation." And then she told us that. And she was like, oh, and I think there's a town that tourists like where, where Buddha attained enlightenment. And we were like, what are you talking about? And when we Googled it, it was like, oh, yeah, Buddha attained enlightenment, like not 10 kilometers off route from where we are going to be going anywhere. So we end up going to this like magical temple town with like like religious pilgrims from around the world who are coming to worship in the place where Buddha attained enlightenment.
1: And things you never would have done without asking locals.
0: Yeah, things it. that I never would have expected to exist alongside this reputation. Mm-hmm. So pivoting a
1: little bit, I know that you had said, well, not in this conversation, but when we were talking uh, last week, that you broke up with a partner of nine years just before going to India. And I'm interested in sort of what the emotional landscape of that trip was like, like on the heels of that.
0: Yeah, so- yeah, I had been with that previous boyfriend for for my entire adult life, and when I got to India, yeah, so a little context of mine and Danny's relationship was that Danielle and I had met in 2011 uh, while volunteering in New Orleans, and so we had spent cumulatively we had spent less than a month together ever. He's Canadian and lives in Montreal, and I was living in New York on and off, so we did visit each other a couple times, but we had never spent like more than oh, a couple weeks together and also a little context of north india is that hindi is the predominant language in north india so a lot of people aren't taught english and don't know english it's not a priority for a lot of folks so in the in that context riding across the himalayas doing like Some of the hardest physical work I'd ever done and at altitude that I had never experienced before was really intense. And then to also be like mourning the loss of this relationship was uh, like I would dream about my ex. I would like wake up wondering why I had broken up with him, thinking about the ways in which I was then isolated because now I'm I'm linguistically isolated because I can't talk to anybody except my travel partner who I don't actually know that well at this point. And I'm emotionally isolated because we have a SIM card that barely works like in those mountainous regions. Like I couldn't text my friends. I couldn't communicate with anybody really. So it was very that level of like linguistic, emotional, physical isolation was really intense. I would have Like almost every night I would dream of him and then have to climb a fucking mountain pass. (laughs) So I think a lot of the Himalayas for me was working through what it means to exist as a single person Mm -hmm. and to not have somebody to call at the end of the day to be able to talk about what's going on in my life, to be able to like run through the like mundane details of what happened. And I didn't have anybody with whom I could talk about my relationship with Daniel as it was being formed, you know? Like I had never, as an adult, who had been, in a, I had been in a relationship with him my entire adult life. And so I had never had a period of my life where I couldn't call on him to talk about just what was happening. So that was really intense to like feel that while doing this intense physical activity. At the same time, by the time we got out of the Himalayas and as we rode them through the desert, That linguistic isolation was still there. But Daniel and I became a lot closer. And, you know, he was no longer a stranger to me after a few weeks. And I started to, like, imagine a future without him. And I don't think I had ever done that before. Like, I don't think I had ever been able to imagine what my life would be like if I wasn't planning my travel nurse contracts around when I would be able to see him Mm -hmm. or... Like what, if I can live anywhere in the world, like I'm no longer physically bound to this person. So then I can open up the world as a possibility. Yeah, it was really, it was really life-changing to be going through all those things at the same time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious then about your experience with queer community in India.
0: Yeah. So I had done so, so that's like again, like part of like how I feel safe is like just doing research about different communities. And so I had looked up, looked into um, queer communities in different cities that we'd be going through. And we ended up not going through that many major major cities, um, but we did go through Kolkata. In Kolkata, we reached out to this queer cafe that's run by these two women, and we had lunch with them. And it was really interesting to hear about the ways that almost queer community in India mirrors the way a uh, queer community exists here. They were talking a lot about how, like, the most powerful, visible queer communities there are, like, cisgender gay men. That those are the folks who have the most money and put on the parades and throw the biggest parties. And so it's pretty, it's maybe not, not as difficult for them to find each other in big cities. India's has so many different worlds within the country and the differences between culture in rural spaces versus urban spaces are really, really big. Um, and cities are very, very different from each other. So like take this with many, many grains of salt mm-hmm. that like what I'm saying is very specific to Kolkata and very specific to um, what these folks were talking about was that in their experience in Kolkata, that, Queer culture was dominated by cis gay men. And so they had created this space that was specifically for queer women and trans folks so that they could have a home that was not centering capitalism and not centering like cis men. And so that was really cool to sit down with folks and be like, oh, this is a totally a conversation I've had like in New York City. This is totally a conversation I've had in San Francisco. Uh, You know, and to see them like actively trying to dismantle that. Um, and using the like privileges that they had to create a space in which people could use it, not just as a cafe, but also as a performance space, as a dance space, as a rehearsal space. And to like see their vision behind that was really cool. And then when we got further south, as we we got to a city called Chennai, which is like in South India. And by then we were we were like really, really ready to finish the trip by that point. We were like, let's just race to the, the tip of India. And then we got to Chennai. And we were like, actually, this is like a very, very comfortable, very, very westernized city. And there's like a U.S. consulate there. And so there are actually like a lot of foreigners or like Westerners who come to spend time there or to, who are living there. There's like international schools. We had warm showers hosts who were Americans. And so we were like, oh, wow, this is like, the most familiar culture we have experienced in like three and a half months. So we ended up spending about a week there. And this was when, this was before Section 377, the the like gay sex ban was repealed. So that gay sex ban was specifically targeting men who have sex with men and saying that, like making that criminalized. So that was still in place while we were there. But Danny as bold as he is, got on Grindr and started swiping. I guess you don't swipe on Grindr, but started talking to people on Grindr and went on a few dates. And then I, that kind of emboldened me to do the same. So like my first dates of my adult life were like in Chennai <laughs> 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 with women, which was hilarious and yeah I was like so I was such a little baby and Danny like coached me through the whole thing of like go you're like an interesting person who can hold a conversation you'll be okay <laughs> and yeah it was pretty cool and it was pretty cool to talk like queer women in in India and in Chennai who were often talking about how they felt more expect accepted than they would have expected to um that when they like quote unquote, came out to their family like nobody was surprised. <laughs> but but that's totally not the case for everybody. And especially not the case for folks who are in like more rural cities or who have different access to media.
1: Mm-hmm. So it's so interesting, like, as you're talking, I'm just like, it's like hitting me how big of a sort of transformation time this probably was for you. Like you mentioned earlier on that, like, knowing that you were queer for a while and but not like wanting to claim that publicly I don't remember I don't want to put words in your mouth you said something like that and then being single mm-hmm. for the first time in your adult life right and like yeah. all of this happening at the same time and then like going on this trip which is hard and transformative for other reasons and then going on like your basically like you said like first dates right and that was that being with women and that like there's just like a lot in what you just said that I'm like yeah that sounds like a significant period of your life
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was wild and like it it's wild talking about it because it is so dramatic. But like when I was experiencing it, I was just like, all right, like this is my life. (laughs) This is like this lined up well for me. So I'm just going to say yes to it. Like we have a week in Chennai, I guess Danny's going on dates. I have nothing else to do. So I guess I'll go on dates. (laughs) But I think that there's something too
1: about like not to say that we can't go through like big transformations or like new exploration in a familiar environment, but I think that there is something about travel or about the like newness of that and the freedom of that that maybe makes it feel a little bit safer. I mean, I know that I have felt that way, not in the realm of specifically the conversation we're having, but there is something about travel that's like even if it's this is going to be a really like silly analogy, but like trying new foods or doing things. There's just mm-hmm. like, an, like an air of exploration. And there's just like, we put less pressure on ourselves sometimes than we do like in our home community. The stakes don't feel as high. So um, yeah, I wonder if that is like at all relevant for you.
0: Yeah, no, that's absolutely true, I think. And I think that's something that like, as I travel all the time, like I have built my life around travel because I'm a travel nurse and I go on these long trips and I don't really have a home. And so there's something that I think about the lifestyle that I've built for myself, that I'm constantly like, pote- there's like potential for transformation everywhere I go. And there's like, I'm constantly putting myself in in places and situations that are uncomfortable and trying to be like, well, this is actually in my realm of doing, so I'll try it, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that like, for me, I called this, this storytelling tour the fuck, fuck impossible road trip. And I think that when I look back on how like this breakup happened and then like dating for me happened for the first time, like not only did biking across India seem absurd (laughs) and like I had to say fucking possible in order to be able to bike across my family's continent, like the place where my family's from. um, I had to say fucking possible in order to break up with this person who i had been with forever. I had to say, fucking possible in order to like make my romantic life what I wanted it to be for so long and what I had resisted for so long because of whatever was going on with me at that point so I had to like learn to expand my own realm of personal impossibility or or personal possibilities in order to do all of these things and I think that travel has helped me a lot with that because it's like Okay, well I've done this thing that seems hard and absurd and impossible, but like I just did that. So like what else can I do, <laughs> you know? Absolutely.
1: I mean, and there's something that you're speaking to that I think is universally applicable, this idea that like change of any kind of any size comes through action, right? That you ended this relationship. You planned this thing to India. You went on these dates. Like, I mean, sure, stuff can happen to us and can happen by accident. I'm not saying that that's not true. But I think for the most part, if we want something different, we have to do something Mm. different. And like you just listed off a bunch of ways and in a short time span, you did that. And I mean, even this, this storytelling road trip and doing these events and, you know, speaking and stuff. If that's the first time you've ever done something like that, it's like, okay, well, I have to do it. I have to call places and find, you know, like ask if I can speak there. I don't know, like, what the actual logistics look like for you, but it's like we have to make these things happen for ourselves, which doesn't mean don't ask for help and all that other stuff. But mm-hmm. I, I just have to remind myself sometimes that, like, when I'm feeling fearful or, you know, when something seems impossible, like, it only happens by, like, you only do the thing
0: by doing the thing. Yeah, you only do the thing by doing the thing. Exactly. Yeah, it's so true. And yeah, we like make up. I make up, I shouldn't say everybody, but I make up all these excuses or I make up all these reasons why I'm not good enough or not capable of doing something. But like, (laughs) I think the perfect example is that like, I feel like such an imposter in in the writing community. And when I was creating this chapbook that I ended up taking on the storytelling tour and selling it and as Danny and I were creating it together, we co-authored this chapbook called Asking for Elephants. And as we were creating it together, we were just like, well, we bicycled across India together. We can probably like (laughs) create this document together. You know, we can probably self-publish this little book together. Even though, even if I feel like an imposter in the writing community, even if I'm like, not sure about my words, you know, (laughs) like, it, I, did, I already did something that seemed absurd. I can do this too. Yeah.
1: And, and then I think a lot too, my friend Bryce uh, talks about this, about, you know, the fear of making the wrong choice or doing the wrong thing. And she's like, well, with virtually everything, you can just make a different choice. right? Yeah. Like, so if through the process of writing this, okay, maybe your next book you do differently, or you learn something. like, I hope that I'm constantly learning and being able to adapt and that this idea of, yeah, again, it goes back to what you were saying earlier of like, you'll figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> like something, yeah there's something there. So I guess with that in mind, what would you say to someone who's specifically dreaming of doing a long distance bike trip? Like anything that you wish that you would have known at the beginning?
0: Yeah, I would be really careful. And I think this is true for everything that I've done is just be really careful about who you take advice from and like what energy you let in. I, and I think this is like pretty, I don't know if it's a hundred percent specific, just like Indian culture, but. But how I have learned to deal with my family's stress is by, um, like, I already have my trips planned by the time I tell them about them. I, I never approach it with like a, hey, I'm thinking about doing this thing. Because then they will let, you know, then that allows them to put all of their potential negativity or like safety concerns or fears for me, like for them to put that on me and make it my responsibility. Um, and that's just simply not my responsibility. That's a burden that I have decided that I do not need to bear. So I, when I tell my family about what I'm planning on doing, it's like when the ball is already rolling. And then I, I'm pretty careful with when I have an idea, like I'm pretty careful about like who I tell it to first because I want those people to be the people who are gonna ask the right questions and be enthusiastic about how I can accomplish it.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
0: when I was planning this fucking possible road trip, the first people who I told were people from my community of writers of color because they would, they were A, gonna like cheer me on. um And B, they were gonna tell me like what or like encourage questions to ask myself and ask like folks around me, like questions of audience, questions of purpose, you know, of like why I'm really doing this, that they would be able to encourage it while challenging me. And so that I think is like a big lesson that I take really seriously is that like, when you're planning something big, like be careful what energy you let into, um, that planning process.
1: I think that's such good advice. I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning about boundaries, right? That like, Mm. you don't need to be a dumping ground for everyone's fears and opinions and projections. And so much of people's reactions to whatever it is that you do with your life, whether it's your romantic life or your career or, you know, a bike trip or something. so many of the reactions don't have anything to do with you, right? And and some of them do. And you know, the difference between those people and other people, but like, Yeah. I I like that a lot. This idea of putting things in place and then being not just intentional about who it is that you bring in first, but I've also found something that's really helped me is to spell out like what feedback I am and I'm not looking for. Like I remember I'm working right now on a book, like a memoir about my Arizona trail hike last year and sort of Mm -hmm. stories about how to be alone essentially. And When I had someone, the first couple of people read like the first, first rough draft, you know, it was like, okay, I'm not looking for a cheerleading section. I'm past the point of like needing an ego boost. Like I'm looking for Mm. these three things, right? But there was a time earlier on where it wouldn't have been the case where I'm like, just tell me I'm awesome and that I can do this, right? And there's something really freeing going back to when we were talking about the power of like the kindness of strangers and asking for help. It's also our responsibility to spell out what it is that we need. Like people aren't mind readers. And I find so much relief, you know, when a friend says, hey, I'm going through a hard time. It would be really awesome if you could like send me funny gifts this week. I'm like, I'm on it, right? As opposed to just this like vague, I wish I could do something, but I don't know what to do. And so taking on the responsibility of, you know, not just being intentional of who you tell, but then like when you need help, like what it is that you're asking for.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah. so that you're not just a uh, receptacle for everyone else's anxiety. <laughs> oh my gosh. Total, I have enough anxiety. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, I have already planned the thing because I know how I'm going to feel safe. So yeah, totally. it's all good. Like, I don't need anyone else. You mentioned
1: earlier that one of the stories that you were telling on this road trip was your parents' immigration story. Is that something that yeah. you feel comfortable sharing? I would love to hear that.
0: Yeah, sure. So in the context of biking across India, there was a moment when we were riding into Bihar, which is the state that I was saying earlier, has a like reputation for a lot of violence historically. And I got really sick while <laughs> while on those days, I got the first vertigo I'd ever gotten in my life. Um, and so I was like basically riding my bike while every time like riding my bike was okay, but then every time I like got off the bike or stood up or sat down, I would get like pretty like hands on the ground, head spinning vertigo. And part of what I've been talking about in these events is how that day, like, we had to make a choice on whether we ha- we were going to ride that day and how we would move forward if we didn't ride. And I said, you know what, like, let's just ride. If I can't do it, we'll take it. We'll, like, flag a truck down and throw our bikes in a truck. So we were riding that day and I was riding immediately behind Daniel. He was riding slower than usual so that I could stay like just behind him. So it would be a little bit easier um, when like drafting off of somebody because you get a little bit less air resistance. And so I remember thinking about how, about just about my mom and about how my mom had like immigrated to the US, how she had done, she had left India uh, two days after Christmas in the 70s, almost 40 years ago. And she flew two days after Christmas, landed in Michigan, like saw snow for the first time in her life. She had left my dad and her firstborn child in Kerala, you know, at home in India. And so she landed in this new country wearing like a sari, had no winter jacket, had, you know, no significant amount of American dollars in her pocket. And she was being picked up and taken care of by the professor who had brought her to the US on a postdoc fellowship. And so she had basically dropped herself into an unfamiliar country with no support system, no money. And I was thinking about how I had dropped myself into an unfamiliar country, into a country where I knew very few people. Um, and now I'm sick. But at the same time, I had Danny and I had wealth. I had the ability to like fly out anytime I wanted. I had travel insurance. And this was all a choice that I had made. This was a fucking vacation. And so that day, I thought a lot about how everything that I was doing could not be nearly as hard as what my mom had gone through. And then like, I think I forget exactly how much time it was before my dad came over. I think it was between six months or a year, but she was like basically navigating this without family for the first time in her life. Wow. Yeah. And it just, I realized that I would never do anything that hard. (laughs) I said, I couldn't do anything that hard because of the privileges that I was born with because of the accidents of my birth that led me to be able to drop myself into a country and bike across it. Yeah. So my dad came a few months later. My, my eldest brother was born in India and he didn't come to the U S until he was four. So then he lived for like several years without his parents by his side. Yeah. So I don't know. I think a lot, I think being in India made me think a lot about my family and our relationship to immigration, um I have two sister in laws who were who were born in India and immigrated to marry my brothers and I think a lot about how isolating that must I thought a lot in India about how isolating that must be that they dropped themselves into this country with no support system with like to marry men mm-hmm. you know um yeah, yeah, and this
1: idea that what you were just sharing makes me think i've shared this a lot before but my friend lauren talks about this idea that it's a privilege to be able to choose your suffering mm. and like so much of these types of adventures, like you said like you put yourself in that situation which doesn't make the times that are hard less hard no one wants to be on the ground with vertigo right like it doesn't diminish that that's also an experience that you went through but just that like holding on to that knowledge that like this is something that i chose and that that's an unbelievable privilege
0: absolutely it's an unbelievable privilege yeah yeah so where do your parents live now my parents live in New Jersey okay. in my, the, same, the same house I grew up in. Oh, nice. So
1: did they come to any of your tour events? Like have they heard you speak about this? Oh my gosh. My mom came to my first
0: tour event. <laughs> yeah, my mom and two of my brothers. I have four brothers. Two of my brothers came to that first event and it was like pretty special to have them in the room. And it was pretty... Having my mom there actually made me... She was all nervous. She didn't, she didn't think she would be able to come until that day. And then she was like, but you know, I have a complicated relationship with my parents, and so she was like, "You know, I could come, but I don't want to step on your toes. I don't want to make you ner- more nervous or whatever." And it was—it was literally the first time I had ever done any speaking, <laughs> in it, like to a group of people. So I was already super nervous. But I think having her in the room actually really helped me challenge myself to tell the most honest story I could. Yeah, and to. Like be honest about the fact that that's what I was thinking about. I was thinking about her when I was in India. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: no, I think I think that that's beautiful. And this idea that like the people that know us best, and whether that's a complicated relationship, I think for a lot of folks that that can relate to that, right? That for any number yeah. of reasons, our family of origin relationships are the most complicated. But there is something there to be able to like do justice to that, or to like honor that, and to, you know, to talk about yeah. it as honestly as possible. Yeah, no, I think I think that that's so beautiful.
0: Yeah. To honor where you come from, especially when like what I'm doing is something that like my mom doesn't know how to ride a bike.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Something that she
0: has no access to. Yeah.
1: And for her to be able to see like, Hey, this is what I have done with, you know, the privilege that I have and all of that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's lovely. I actually think that that's a good place to, to start to wrap up. And I think, as you know, um, from having listened to the show, that the way that we end the episodes are with, a series of what we call community questions. So essentially the Patreon community puts forward this time. It's nine questions that like all eight guests of this season are answering the same nine random questions. If you're down to answer some random questions. Sure. (laughs) Um, So the first one is um, about self-acceptance. It's been a topic of of conversation for us lately. Can you share one thing that you've had to work to accept about yourself?
0: My lack of formal education when it comes to writing. (laughs) Mm, Okay. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: I have to do my best with these questions not to go down like 19 other rabbit holes, but (laughs) yes, (laughs) I hear you. Who's one blogger or podcaster or writer, just maybe someone you love on social media that's had an impact on your thinking this year? Who should we be following and listening to?
0: Oh, so many. Oh, shoot. I love boosting the work of Satima Askar, who is a queer Kashmiri Pakistani person who came out with a book this year, a book of poetry called If They Come For Us. And she was also the writer of the Brown Girls web series, um, which is about, a queer, about queer brown folks and friendship and all the wonderful things that are intertwined in that. Yeah, there's many. Yeah, Should I, should I keep going? Or? I
1: mean, if there's anyone else that you really want to mention, you totally can, yeah.
0: Um, yeah, Jenny bruso of Unlikely Hikers. I love her work so much.
1: I love her too. She's been on the show. Yes, she's the best. What's one place that you would love to visit in the next year?
0: In the next year, I am, because of all of the travel of the last year, <laughs> I am thinking the next year will have a lot more to do with like grounding myself and forming roots Yeah, physically. So I think I will probably make it back up to Alaska within the next year. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, and I love that too, the idea that there's like seasons for things or chapters for things. Like sometimes it's a lot of travel and sometimes it's like grounding down. And I think that's true. You know, I think about that in terms of creativity too. And sort of the, this idea of productivity of like, you have to do the thing every day and you have to write 2000 words a day. And maybe that is true for some people, but like that has never been my creative experience. Like there's seasons of creating a lot and then there's seasons of not, and just like letting things not be so static all the time.
0: Totally. Like, I'm ready for hibernation season. Yeah, Yeah,
1: I hear you. That's (laughs) amazing. What's your favorite self care activity? What does self care look like for you these days?
0: These days, self care looks like writing, actually, a lot of the time. I've gotten into the, I haven't done a whole lot of writing while I've been on this road trip, but the writing, like, I make a point to write every time I have an event. And anytime I'm feeling anxious about how an event went or whatever, I have, Like the, I don't know, you may have heard of this like morning pages practice of like just writing, free writing for a couple pages and then doing the affirmations thing. Like I, that practice feels very like self-care to me. Mm -hmm.
1: What's something that you're objectively pretty bad at, but that you love to do anyway?
0: (laughs) Um, objective, maybe like riding my bike, honestly. (laughs) I went to this, this, uh, Bike summit this past year. And like, I went to a workshop on like how to ride your bike. And I was like, oh my God, I learned so much from that (laughs) workshop.
1: (laughs) You're like, I've cycled over 10,000 miles and I'm going to learn from this like beginner's workshop. That's amazing. Yeah.
0: I like barely know how to ride my bike. (laughs) Oh my God. So good.
1: (laughs) What's one thing that you've quit in your life that maybe felt really hard to quit at the time, but wound up definitely being the right choice for you?
0: Oh, yeah. The relationship. Mm -hmm. The big breakup for sure. Yeah. So the next question is about books, which,
1: let's say two or three books, any type of book, any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you find yourself recommending or rereading most often?
0: This, this book that I read recently that I mentioned earlier, Hanif Abdurraqib's If uh, They Can't Kill Us Till They Kill Us. I read that at the very beginning of this tour and that has had a huge impact on this tour, I think.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Other books that I talk about a lot Oh my God. I love reading. There's so many. (laughs) I know me too. It's like a very stressful question for me. (laughs) It's a very stressful question. I actually really, so my writing teacher is, uh, Faith Adielli and she has a lot of work around like redefining travel writing and talking about how folks of color are always traveling because of systemic reasons (laughs) that a lot of our journeys become travel journeys. And uh, her book, Meeting Faith, I think, opened up a lot of possibilities in the way that writing can, or in a, in what a book can look like, and it's a very different form than a lot of books take. That's so interesting. Uh, yeah, she she basically like wrote the book, and then also she it it's the story of her becoming the first Black Buddhist nun in Thailand, and so she tells the story in like the regular like how a book would look. And then in the margins has, like includes her journals and the research that she was doing at the time. So it's basically two books in one book.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, I'm definitely going to read that. That sounds incredibly yeah. fascinating. Yeah. That's <laughs> really cool. Love it. Um, Anything else yeah. you want to mention? Any other books?
0: I just read Sick by Porochista Kukpor. Yep. And I I did really enjoy that. And it's a, it's a pretty fast read. And I think it it brings to light a lot of issues around like, uh, the, uh, the U S medical system. Mm -hmm. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's been on my list for a while. Um, so the last question, if you could leave our community and the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask
0: themselves or a small action to take? Um, yeah, I think in this time, especially like supporting the work of Trans folks and queer folks of color is super important to me, especially artists, especially disabled folks. Like it is really, it's really hard for folks to make money out here. And if you are able to throw down money for people, that can make such a big difference in the lives of like creators of color. Mm -hmm.
1: So yeah, I love that. Uh, What's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks?
0: Yeah, definitely. Instagram. I am at postcards from Matt on Instagram. Matt with one T. It's my initials, Marianne Thomas. And uh, that's probably my favorite place for people to find me on the internet. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Marianne, thank you so much.
0: Thank you. This has been so fun.
1: And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I wanted to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Tracy. Hi, Tracy. Hi. You ready to answer five hopefully fun rapid-fire questions? Absolutely. So my favorite question first, what are you totally obsessed with right now?
2: So I just discovered Dax Shepard's podcast, Armchair Expert. Um, It was recommended to me by someone, and I've like downloaded too many episodes to listen to, but I'm excited to dig into that.
1: Okay. I haven't listened to that. I'm always like, it's like a good and a bad thing when I hear about a podcast that somebody loves. Cause I'm like, I yeah. can't keep up with the podcasts <laughs> that I already love, but then I always want to listen to whatever else <laughs> people are enjoying. So, okay. I will check yeah. that out. <laughs> when you were young, what did you want to be when you grew up?
2: Oh God. I was one of those kids that wanted to be everything. I liked animals. So there was veterinary or vet, what is it? Veterinarian <laughs> at one point. Um, I watched CSI a lot. So there was one, whatever they're called. And yeah, I was kind of into art. So there was some like an architect at one point, but yeah, I was kind of all over the map. Yeah. I love it. (laughs) Multi-passionate. Yeah. What's been a tough
1: lesson you have had to learn the hard way?
2: I don't know. That's a good question. Tough lesson. Can I table that one?
1: Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I mean, it doesn't have to be like, you know, the toughest (laughs) thing or the whatever, but just, I don't know, like a lesson that you've learned. What's something that you would love to get better at in the next year?
2: That sounds kind of weird, but imagination. Mm, Say more about that. What do you mean? So I've recently been dabbling in art and drawing and painting, and I find I'm really good at drawing what I see. Like I can copy a picture of a flower or a mountain or something like that, but If I have a piece of paper in front of me and I want to draw a flower or a mountain, I just space and I'm like, I don't know what that looks like. And so just, I don't know, being able to express myself more freely and using imagination to come up with different ideas and pictures of things.
1: I love that. What a fun 2019 goal, (laughs) like improve imagination. (laughs) That's amazing. I love that. it's,
2: It's weird, but yeah.
1: So then the last question, what's one thing that you wish people were more open and honest about?
2: Probably, I feel this is the common answer for this podcast, but money. I'm currently backpacking and people always wonder how I afford it or things like that. And I find a lot of friends, especially are, I don't know, scared to share their finances or not open about it. But yeah, definitely money.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that. The re- I mean, it's not a uh, coincidence that that's such a common answer to this question, right? That it's yeah. something that affects every <laughs> single one of our lives, and that if there's more transparency around, I think can make people both feel not alone and just like understand each other. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So you are a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you are one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season. And I would love for you to share two things. First of all, why you decided to support the show and then what you have enjoyed most about being in our community.
2: So I've been listening to the podcast for a while and I followed your couple hikes on Instagram. And I'm getting into the mindset now where I want to support things and people that uh, I believe are making a difference and that I engage with or interested in. And so that kind of, I saw your call on Instagram, I guess, when you were recording your podcast um, for this new season to support. And so I finally pulled the trigger and did that. And so far, I've been really enjoying the um, emails of Grit and Grace. They're a fun and really like, you're a really great writer, So it's been awesome to read those every Friday.
1: Thanks. Uh, yeah, I, there's lots of the, I mean, basically I love all of the bonus content, and the things that we do here, <laughs> but the Friday emails yeah. will never not be my favorite thing. So I'm always pleased oh, when yeah, other people enjoy sure. them too. So, <laughs> and I, I know that you are traveling right now, but can you share where you are and maybe a social media link for people to follow you?
2: Yeah. So I'm in London, England, heading to Barcelona, Spain tonight, I guess <laughs> on a bus ride. And I have a blog about my travels called A Taste of Trace, um, so it's a tasteoftrace.com, and it's A Taste of Trace on Instagram as well.
1: Perfect. Yeah. And I mean, obviously by the time that this goes out, you will have already done the, from London to Spain and who knows might even be somewhere else. So a good place to follow along for folks who are interested in like long-term travel. That's perfect. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. Honestly, I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Perhaps we can even record a future outro together like this one. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can, and no matter what, we're in this together.